Good morning, everyone. There certainly have been times in my life when God has, piece by piece, put people and places together with results beyond what I could imagine. Beyond what I could imagine or accomplish. With outcomes that I tend to refer to as coincidences beyond coincidence. And I don't for a minute believe that they happen only to me. I believe that they happen to everyone. And while we are sometimes aware of them, other times we are not. And perhaps there are times when they are not ours to know. This morning, as you know, I've chosen to focus on the biblical character of Cornelius, although Peter is certainly a player in this story as well. I will also talk about Father Bernard de Margeret, a humble man who would be very surprised that I was speaking about him if he knew. But beginning with Cornelius, let me tell you his story. Before I do, let me just remind you that pen and paper as we know it today were not so readily available 2,000 years ago. And yet Luke found the story so important that he tells it twice. The full story is told in all 48 verses of chapter 10, and then he has Peter recounting the story in the first 18 verses of the next chapter in Acts 11, which were read today. As it turns out, this is the story of one of the great breakthrough events in the Christian church. So, Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman soldier stationed at Caesarea while serving in the Italian regiment where he had some limited authority. A regiment of 600 soldiers was divided into six centuries with a centurion at the head of each and Cornelius was such a centurion. An ancient historian describes the qualifications for the role as this. Centurions are desired not to be so much overbold and reckless as to be strong leaders of steady and prudent mind, not prone to take the offensive to start fighting wantonly, but able, when overwhelmed and hard-pressed, to stand fast and die at their posts. I don't know how many of you watch Blue Bloods on Friday nights, but this week the show seemed to be about loyalty and responsibility to their department and that in the face of, of conflict and danger. Cornelius is such a man who first and foremost understands the meaning of courage and loyalty. Cornelius and his family are not Jews or Jewish converts, nor are they pagans worshiping other gods, but they are devout and God-fearing, although not full converts to Judaism. God-fearing was apparently a term used commonly for Gentiles who had grown tired of the immoralities and frustrations of their ancestral faiths and had started attending the Jewish synagogues. God-fearing men were not circumcised and did not follow the many Jewish laws, but they believed in one God and valued the ethics of the Jewish religion. Cornelius's good deeds were evidence of his faith. He was a generous and charitable man, and he was a man of prayer who prayed regularly. Interestingly, the angel who comes to deliver good news does not give him that good news right then and there. Apparently, God had something more in mind for Peter and the church, as well as for Cornelius and his family, 
and God is putting the pieces together. What the angel does tell Cornelius is that good deeds, his good deeds have been noticed and that he is to send messengers to Joppa to bring back a man named Peter who is staying with Simon the Tanner in a house by the sea. Meanwhile, actually it's probably a couple of days later, Peter, tired and hungry, goes up to the roof, which he can because it is flat, and there he finds a place of solitude where he can pray. There he receives a vision, which is like a dream, except that he is fully awake. And what he sees is not something that another person would have seen. It is a strange vision, a bundle let down containing all kinds of living creatures, four-footed animals, reptiles of the earth, and birds of the air. It includes the three classifications of the whole animal kingdom, and therefore animals that Jews, according to their laws, were unable to eat. Yet the command comes, kill and eat. And when Peter protests, stating that nothing unclean or profane has ever entered his mouth, the voice replies, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. The whole interchange is repeated two more times. As one commentary notes, Peter is no stranger to triple repetition. I've had some crazy dreams of late, and I wake up wondering what those are about. Sometimes I can say, ah, oh, I know where that comes from, or I get what that was about. And they give me understanding and courage to make some change in the way I live my life. Most times, though, I have no understanding of their meaning whatsoever. Peter, too, wonders about the meaning of his, this unusual vision. And here we have a glimpse into God's plan and God's timing. While Peter is puzzling about the vision, the messengers from Cornelius arrive. And Peter receives clear instructions from the Spirit that he is to go with them. This immediate linking of the vision with Cornelius makes it clear that there is more to this lesson than, than just a lesson in foods. God has more to teach Peter, and it becomes apparent to Peter that if Gentile foods, foods are clean, then Gentiles themselves are also clean. Back in Joppa, Peter has already offered hospitality to the Gentile man sent by Cornelius. That would have been acceptable. However, as he arrives in Caesarea at the home of Cornelius, he has a big decision to make. Because for a Jew to accept hospitality from a Gentile, that would be another matter. Under Jewish law, it would have been forbidden. It would have been taboo. And yet Peter has clearly caught on to God's intended lesson as he says, God has told me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Note that when Peter later tells the story of the vision and the visit, he refers to Jesus Christ as one who is not only Lord of some, but Lord of all. And he adds, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. That this was a big deal at the time is underlined by the fact that God goes to great lengths to get the message across. Until now, the disciples had understood that when Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, it inherently meant they were to make Jews out of them first. This just reminds me of a time many years ago when the question came up in an adult Sunday school class, do you have to eat chicken flesh and plumus 
and other traditional Mennonite foods in order to be a Mennonite. It was a serious question at the time, and one to which some responded with a clear yes. Since missionaries had gone out from that congregation, I wondered what these individuals thought about these converts in new churches across the sea. I doubt very much that those folks ate Vedeniki. Some of us have a tendency to think that our own beliefs and ways of being Christian are the right way. In fact, the only right way. It reminded me of this old joke that you've probably heard many times in different ways. A man arrives at the gates of heaven. St. Peter asks, religion? The man says, Methodist. St. Peter looks down his list and says, go to room 24, but be very quiet as you pass room 8. Another man arrives at the gates of heaven. Religion? Lutheran. Go to room 18, but be very quiet as you pass room 8. A third man arrives at the gates. Religion? Presbyterian. Go to room 11, but be very quiet as you pass room 8. The man says, I can understand there being different rooms for different denominations, but why must I be quiet when I pass room 8? St. Peter tells him, well, the Mennonites are in room 8, and they think they're the only ones there. <laughs> the writer of this joke, when I found it online, says, the joke I thought would be on all of us when we dutifully entered our respective gates and discovered that we were, in fact, all in the same place. I hope we would only stare at each other for a moment before we would all burst out laughing and said, good one, God. In the story of Cornelius and his conversion to Christianity, we note that the believers who witnessed these things were astonished that the Holy Spirit would come even to the Gentiles. When are we surprised? I met more than one elderly man in the hospital, self-professed drunks and womanizers, who showed a basic but strong belief that they were loved by God. And an understanding that an and that I might have expected from seasoned Christians, but not from the likes of these. I could only be astonished and amazed, humbly aware that God doesn't only work in the ways I might imagine or through people I might expect. Through what I can only attribute to the work of the Holy Spirit, which is the bond of love, I grew to care for these men. Who would have thought God would grant even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Wildwood's welcome statement, in case you haven't looked at it in a while, reads as follows. We're glad to welcome everyone to worship and participate with us. Wildwood Mennonite Church is a community of followers of Jesus Christ that invites into its membership all who wish to join us in the journey of faith. With God's help, we will not discriminate in regard to race, ethnic background, age, gender identity, sexual orientation, income, education, ability, and other factors that might give rise to division and marginalization. Before we get too proud, I'll mention a comment made by someone this past summer that sometimes it is easier to be welcoming to persons of other world religions than to persons of another Christian denomination. I know there are certain denominations where my attitudes certainly stand guilty as charged. And there are other times when I feel more ecumenical. 
I had a friend questioning me taking Catholic communion when I was at Queen's house a number of years back. You simply can't do that, she maintained. So I explained to her, I was at a retreat there many years ago, and when I realized they would be having communion, I asked whether I would be able to participate. The dear sister leading the retreat answered, that is between you and God. And so it is now 25 years that I've been receiving communion there, which is, in many other churches, not only Catholic, still unheard of. I don't have to believe exactly as they do, that this is the actual body and blood of Christ. They know that I believe it is a symbolic ritual, that I receive communion there with integrity, and it is good. Now moving to Father Bernard de Margeret. I got to know Bernard in the hospital setting where he was the Catholic priest doing visitation. My heart warms just looking at his picture, for he is a wise and kind man who on one occasion invited me to read some of the prayers while he was giving the sacrament of the sick, also known as last rites. And I was very honored to join him in that time of final blessing. I think Father Bernard rates being a profile of hope today because he was entrusted 35 years ago by Bishop James Mahoney with the full-time ministry of ecumenism. This enabled Father de Margeret to become the founding director of the Prairie Center for Ecumenism, or PCE, here in Saskatoon, a position that he held for 10 years. With the goal of becoming aware and supportive of other ecumenical relationships and activities, the constitution of the center describes the PCE's mandate as to call the churches to the goal of visible reconciliation and unity for the world's sake expressed in one faith and one Eucharistic fellowship in Christ. This mandate is drawn from the foundational documents of other ecumenical agencies, especially the World Council of Churches. The Constitution of the Prairie Center for Ecumenism also indicates that the establishment of the center corresponds to the common will of the partner churches to move together on the road of Christian renewal, reconciliation, and unity, saying, we do so in a spirit of faithfulness and obedience to the gospel. Father Bernard gives me hope because he has worked for and toward ecumenism for over 50 years, and his vision for that work has always been rooted in prayer, in recognition that we must approach the distinctive aspects of our faith and life with humility. He believes that we must pray not for the conversion of the other, but that the will of Christ may be realized, that all may be one. It is his belief that Christian unity will require more than a change within individuals. It will require a sort of conversion of the heart and soul of churches toward Christ, for Christ is our focus, and oneness in Christ is our aim. Allow me to turn back to Cornelius. Like Rebecca highlighted in our first Sunday of this series, Cornelius the Centurion was an ordinary person doing his job and living life as well as he could. What gives me hope is that God used him to teach a very important truth that changed the church for all time. As a song we will sing during communion says, Jesus says to us still, all who do the Lord's will, all who do the Lord's will are my sisters and my brothers.
Christianity could easily have become merely another kind of Judaism. But the story opens Christianity up to the whole world, to everyone. So Cornelius gives me hope because he simply followed where he was led, and God used him to teach Peter, the early Christians, and all of us that God has no favorites, that all are precious in God's sight. In the story of Cornelius, hope is found in uh, Luke, who is the writer, in Luke's emphasis on the role of the Holy Spirit in transcending Jews' narrow view of who's in and who's out. Inclusion instead of exclusion. Faith in Christ becomes the means through which all humanity is able to share in the unbounded, universal love of God. Our, of God. our Creator God is indeed Lord of all. Finally, the story of Cornelius gives me hope because it offers me a glimpse of what the realm of God might look like here on earth. A realm where neighbors love and respect one another regardless of race or religion. In a time such as this, love and unity seem to be even more crucial. My prayer is that as we take part in the Lord's Supper on this World Communion Sunday, we will learn to see Christ present here at our tables, but also at the tables in our homes and communities and around the world. May it be so.